2: We've got some more information this morning in the case of that civilian RCMP intelligence analyst that is alleged to have leaked sensitive information. Global News investigative journalist Sam Cooper joins us now to talk more about his story, which, by the way, you can find at globalnews.ca. I have to say, this sounds this morning, Sam, like something right out of a movie.
3: Good morning, Simi. Yeah, you're you're exactly right. I mean, the the allegations are incredible and they're really so relevant to the Cullen Commission that's looking into money laundering in B.C. What I had to do to get this story is talk to uh, confidential sources internationally to understand uh, the allegations against ORDIS. Remember, ORDIS is a graduate of UBC, he uh, rose like a, like a skyrocket in the RCMP's intelligence ranks. Uh, he's known as the smartest guy in the room. But the allegations here are that while, uh, while Canada was trying to get a handle on uh, terror financing and money laundering networks that are, that are based internationally and using Canadian cities, Ortiz was allegedly selling the RCMP's plans to uh, the kingpin of this operation, whose name is Altaf Kanani from Pakistan, and, and very briefly, uh, what we know about Kanani is uh, it's estimated he was laundering about 15 billion per year. This is wow. one 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 network, 15 billion, and uh, for uh, Chinese transnational drug cartels, Middle Eastern cartels, Mexican and uh, Colombian cartels, and doing it for terrorist organizations. So the U.S. government alleged that at the highest levels. The terror organizations and these cartels, they're all getting their money laundered by uh, people like Mr. Kanani. And uh, really, when we think about the Cullen Commission, they're looking into whether corruption has allowed money laundering to take root, not just in Vancouver. That's, for their, that's their starting point, but mm-hmm. they're interested nationally. And what this story uh, alleges is probably one of the most influential people in the RCMP was corrupted and uh, not only allowing, but trying to profit from money laundering.
2: Unbelievable. Um, now, we have to also remind people here, Sam, about how uh, Cameron Ortiz was actually arrested and what happened to all that. Like, there was a lot of U.S. involvement in this case.
3: Absolutely. And and before we say that, uh, I'll just say that we have reached out to Mr. Ortiz's lawyer uh, repeatedly to, to try to get comments. We haven't heard back, and the allegations against Ortiz uh, aren't proven. He, he faces his trial. But what happened here is that... Uh, He was allegedly, at least from 2015, uh, reaching out to high-level criminals internationally, trying to sell these RCMP plans, which, by the way, come from our allies, mostly the United States and Australia, according to the allegations. Finally, uh, he was uh, selling to a a BC phone company that was helping international cartels launder money. The FBI caught the BC phone company's CEO, Man from Richmond, Vincent Ramos. And uh in, in the vernacular, they flipped Ramos and found out that Ortis allegedly was the more leaking uh, US and Canadian law enforcement secrets. That's how the RCMP got on to Mr. Ortis. But uh, let's not let's not uh, broach words here. What my mm-hmm. sources say is the RCMP leaders completely missed this. Yeah. They would not have got Ortis unless the FBI found this out and RCMP leaders missed all kinds of warning signs about Mr. Ortis, according to the allegations.
2: Right. And so he was like right under their noses all this time. And here there were all these complaints about money laundering. And again, this was right under their noses. What kind of fallout has there been in the RCMP, Sam, since Cameron Ortis was arrested?
3: There really has been uh, no fallout at all. Uh, the, the RCMP and uh, Canadian, let's just say, you know, justice system are, are clearly trying to keep a very tight lid on this case. Again, Mr. Ortis, uh, we, we, we understand there's still sort of the, the the information that the prosecution has learned being shared to a certain extent with the defense lawyer. Again, this is extremely uh, sensitive information. So the case is just really stuck uh, from what I can see, we don't know if Mr. Ortis will plead guilty, whether he'll fight the charges, but the RCMP is really saying nothing about this case. We reached out to them and said, uh, did Mr. Ortis help one of these uh, people allegedly working for the Global Kingdom in Toronto escape Canada? Because that's what it looks like. The RCMP had no answer. They said, we can't comment the cases before the courts.
2: So your story today as well outlines how Canada really did become kind of a centre for money laundering for many years.
3: Absolutely. It's a story that uh, for people following the Cullen Commission will sound very familiar. Uh, uh, What this story shows is that in Toronto and Montreal, exactly the same thing happening. In this case, it's a Middle Eastern organised crime group that is using these uh, cash houses where drug cash is delivered And then the the money laundering service, whether they're a lawyer, uh, a currency exchange, a casino, (laughs) will store that cash and they will pay it out in wherever the criminals want it around the world. That's how money is moved around the world. And according to uh, my American law enforcement sources, Canada is an extreme weak point. Cities like Vancouver, Toronto, and Montreal, uh, we already know that the RCMP doesn't have the capacity. They're shutting down financial crime units, and uh, that would be why Canada is being taken advantage this way.
2: Unbelievable. Sam, thank you. Thanks, Timmy. Environmental groups are calling on the province of British Columbia to shut down a mining project that's in the Skagit headwaters, and this is southeast of Hope. It's a company called Imperial Metals, and it presented shareholders with an exploratory drilling report back in December. And now we're coming up on three years of waiting for this provincial government to make a decision on that. And many groups are hoping that B.C. turns this down. Tom Unniak is the executive director at Washington Wild, and he joins us now to talk more about this. Tom, thank you for being here.
1: Yeah, well, thanks, Simi. uh, Good morning.
2: Now, how significant is this project? Maybe you can give us an idea of the kind of impact this would have in Washington state.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I know that British Columbians uh, are, are fond of Manning and Skagit Provincial Parks, which is right, uh, th- this this area we're talking about that's threatened with mining and uh, is right in the middle of that. But uh, the Skagit River is actually a really big deal for Washington State. Uh, while it starts, uh, it has its source in Canada, it quickly flows south into Washington State through our own North Cascades National Park down through the Skagit Valley, which is known for uh, tulips, for uh, its farms, and for uh, watching eagles, and ultimately deposits uh, more than 30% of the freshwater into the Puget Sound. Um, the, the Skagit is one of our most productive salmon uh, rivers, um, and it produces a significant amount of Chinook salmon um, and this is the major food source for our southern resident killer whale populations. And this really brings us full circle um, because the same whales that we uh, have grown to love and enjoy uh, seen from the Washington coast are the same whales that are also seen from Vancouver Island and the British Columbia coast. So um, yeah, the is a big deal, both for uh, British Columbians mm-hmm. and for Washingtonians.
2: Yeah, sure. Sounds like it. So then what, what is the concern about this particular project?
1: Yeah, well uh, y- y- you know, the issue here is that uh, any impacts from uh, clear cut logging, which actually uh, has been uh, halted, uh, you know whether it be sediment, or from, um, mining, um, you know, uh, uh, pollutants or, you know, spills, all of that's going to flow downstream. And so that means that that's going to impact all the values down here in Washington state. Um, you know, mining is, um, you know, um, a, a dirty business, but, uh, Imperial metals really, as I don't have to tell your viewers, um, has one of the worst reputations um, of any mining company in British Columbia, particularly due to the uh, Mount Polley mine disaster in 2014, um, which dumped uh, a significant amount of toxic waste into the uh, um, Fraser uh, watershed.
2: Right. OK, so clearly lots of concerns here. It sounds like this decision has been a long time coming. What are you worried about at this
1: point? Yeah, well, I mean, I it, I think it has been um, quite a weight. Um, I think that, that those of us that are concerned about, um, you know, um, uh, recreation, fish, wildlife, uh, orca populations, uh, and the impacts there, uh, you know, kind of, Maybe no news is good news. Uh, I I feel like there is a really strong coalition, international coalition, that I've helped lead of over 200 um, local elected officials, um, local businesses, conservation recreation groups, um, really on both sides of the border that have really weighed in. So um, I think that delay can probably be attributed to the really strong um, opposition to this. Um, But, yeah, it it is important that um, this permit be denied. Um, I think one of the important things here is that there's really an opportunity for a a win-win-win here. Um, You know, uh, the British Columbians can, you know, secure uh, the the Skagit Mountains and and the the two incredible parks there that are just two hours drive. Uh, We can protect on the Washington State side our downstream values that I talked about and frankly, uh, Imperial Metals can um, can can get a win from getting compensated for their mineral claims. There is um, an act. There is a strong interest over the last thirty years in actually buying out those mineral claims, um, and all that can happen.
2: Right. So, what has the um, communication been like then, Tom, with the BC government? What, if anything, have you heard?
1: Well, I know that. Um, uh, the the city of Seattle actually is, is in uh, has signed a treaty with uh, British Columbia uh, called the High Ross Treaty in 1984. and so there's a lot of communication between um, the city of Seattle uh, CLC light which manages the High Ross dam um, and uh, the British Columbia Premier. Um, I, I think that there has not been a lot of um, as you mentioned feedback, Uh, from the British Columbia about that permit. Um, I also know that you you all just had a recent election. So there are some new ministers um, in in charge. And that is what we did yesterday was really um, work together as uh, British Columbia and Washingtonians to kind of really um, reset that that opposition to make sure that the new ministers understand how important this is.
2: Okay, so do you feel like you got their attention?
1: I hope so. I think that we've had their attention. Um, I think the logging uh, threats, the clear cut logging had been halted um, uh, back at the end of 2019, um, which was uh, directly attributed to the strong, um, you know, uh, opposition and concern. And uh, we're hopeful that the the same uh, decision will be made with respect to the threats from mining.
2: All right, we'll see what happens. Tom, thanks for talking to us about it this morning.
1: Great. Thank you so much.
2: Appreciate your time. Tom Uniak, who's the executive director at a group called Washington Wild, as in Washington State. They are very concerned, as you heard him say, about the proposal for a new project that Imperial Metals has presented to the B.C. government. This would be in the Skagit headwaters southeast of Hope and waiting three years now from the BC government to get a decision on it. And they think with the change, with the election, with the new ministers, everybody new in charge now, that this is imminent. So we'll try to find out more about that and find out what's going on there. And so much confusion in Ontario over exactly what their lockdown restrictions mean, even though they came into effect today. Let's talk about that uncertainty. Joining us now is Global News Toronto reporter, Marianne Demand. Marianne, thank you so much for being back with us. Yes, hi, good morning. So since the sense of time that we last talked to you to now, has there been any more clarity over what some of these rules actually mean? Uh, well, you know, uh, to be frank,
4: there has been less head scratching. Uh, so there has been a little bit more clarity, but still a lot of gray area. So as of yesterday, a lot of people were wondering, what is an essential trip? How do you define that? And in response to those questions, the province basically said, we can't define that because an essential trip means so many different things for so many different people.
2: So um, really? Still, <laughs> right,
4: right. So the examples were initially, well, grocery stores or doctor's appointments. And then there were the follow-up questions. Well, okay parents are working, they've got their kids, they've been relying on grandparents, can grandparents still come over and help watch the children? If I live alone, can I still join with another household which was still the case under the provincial lockdown rules? Can we go outside? You know, we are going to have a lot of snow coming up again and when that happened people were hitting the Toboggan Hills. Can we still do that? The province has now said yes to all of the above. And then that's why even more people are scratching their heads because they're saying so then how different is this from the lockdown rules we were already abiding by prior to the stay at home order. Um, the answer to that is simply, well, there's more enforcement and stiffer fines. Okay. And then that even leads to even more. questions. Yeah.
2: I was thinking it sounded like to me from listening to premier Rob for Doug Ford yesterday, it sounded to me like he was hoping that people will just make the right decision on their own.
4: That's exactly it. He basically said, use your best judgment. And, I don't think we got to these record case counts because Ontarians, many of them anyway, are using their best judgment. Right, Um, And so that's why so many people were seeking clarity on this issue. There was so much anticipation about these new restrictions that were coming down. And then when he announced it, everyone was like, "Um, how different is this (laughs) from what we've already been doing with the exception of a few minor tweaks like to business hours of non-essential businesses that have been doing delivery and curbside pickup? For other things like um, enforcement, even police officers, our fire chief here in the city was saying we basically saw the media release and we can't start enforcement until we know exactly what we're looking for, how we're going to stop people. You know, even lawyers are saying, does this mean we're just randomly stopping cars? The answer to that is hopefully no, but they haven't officially said here is the documentation of how this is all going to play out. This is the direction for our police and bylaw officers and workplace inspectors, that's all still pretty much
2: up in the air right now. Hmm. That sounds like a mess, Marianne. So what has it been like? <laughs> like? I know that people have asked Premier Ford for more clarity on this, and what is his response? Yeah, so yesterday, of course, so many reporters were... <laughs> you know
4: inundating the premier's office with for for requests for clarity and so in response the premier's office released an faq sheet uh with frequently asked reporter questions and basically when you read through it it was it was kind of comical in that they just kept saying we can't define what that is in response to this question of what's considered an essential product we can't define what that is um all the while acknowledging that everyone's needs are different you know, you've got the urban areas of the province, you've got the rural areas of the province. So what people might need out there might not be the same needs that we have here. And so that's what the province is saying is the main issue right now and why ultimately they're saying, please use your common sense. Right. Please use your best judgment. But again, we didn't get here because people were exactly. doing that.
2: Exactly. So, Marianne, <laughs> is there any noticeable difference, say, out on the streets then? Have, are people actually just being more careful?
4: Yeah, so that was the big thing. We were out at Union Station downtown, which pre-pandemic would, of course, been busy. Yeah, people, you know, just a swarm of people in suits heading to the offices. It's obviously much quieter during this pandemic, but we always still saw a few people who prefer to still work in the offices. And so the premier has been saying, if you don't have an essential job, stay home. And I did notice that there were fewer people who weren't wearing obvious essential worker uniforms like construction workers or people in scrubs. I saw fewer people like that um, heading to
2: the offices today. Okay, so hopefully people are listening. And how long is this supposed to go on for?
4: So 28 days, that's always been the key number. And of course, there's always been extensions. So if the case numbers don't come down, and we continue to see record cases. It will go on longer than 28 days. Um, I should mention that that would mean for parents who have students in hotspots across the province, the COVID hotspots, which includes Toronto, that would also mean that kids who have been doing in-person learning in schools will have to stay home virtually, which has been uh, another frustration for parents to say the least trying to adjust to learning from home while also balancing their jobs from home.
2: Wow. Okay. So Marianne, just to be clear who, like, who is the front face of all of this? Like is it public health officials that are out there in Ontario or is it the politicians? Right now it's the
4: politicians. We had the news conference with Toronto's mayor, with our medical officer of health, all of them basically saying that we're waiting for more information from the province. And then it goes back to the premier and then it goes back to the officials who are still waiting for more information. So um, until we get that clarity, um, right now, the direction and the attention is still on the premier and the provincial health officials.
2: All right, Marianne, thank you. Thank you. Well, as we just heard from Michael Levy there, the Canadian dollar is trading around 78 cents this morning. That is the continuation of that upwards movement that the Canadian dollar has been on since well, last March, really. It's gone up 10 cents in the last nine months. Now, in normal times of us going down south and shopping and traveling and all that, we'd think that's a great thing. But right now, It's not such a great thing. We're going to find out why that is. Joining us is Avery Shenfeld, CIBC Capital Markets Chief Economist. Avery, thank you for being here. You're welcome. So why isn't a higher Canadian dollar a good thing right now?
5: Well, it's good for consumers. And eventually, when we get back to traveling, it'll be good for us in that way as well. Uh, But the challenge is that in order to buy those things from abroad, Canada has to, of course, export its own products the other way. And what we've seen historically is that when we see the Canadian dollar closing in at 80 cents or stronger, we really have not been that successful in generating economic growth through exports. We've done better when the currency is 75 cents or weaker. And and simply put, our workers are paid in Canadian dollars. We have to compete with workers around the world. And when the Canadian dollar gets strong companies start to think about whether Canada is the right place to do their manufacturing, to produce goods and services, to sell abroad, or look, for example, even to the south of the U.S., where at current exchange rates, workers start to look a little cheaper than Canadian workers.
2: Right. So then given right now how crucial recovery is from the pandemic, do you think every little bit counts?
5: It does in the sense that as we look ahead over the next few years, it would be great if Canada could have a more balanced uh, economic growth picture than we had in the last business cycle. Remember, we heard very often that while we managed to reach something close to full employment before the pandemic, we did so on the backs of Canadian households doing a lot of borrowing, uh, Canadians getting themselves into more debt. And part of the reason we needed to do that is that one leg of the economy, which is the export sector, really wasn't pulling the weight that it should. And that's because, in fact, um, Really, going back all the way to 2008, we've had a period where the Canadian dollar was probably a little too strong to to have our export sector compete. And we continued to lose market share, not only to the Chinas and Mexicos of the world, but again, to places like the south of the U.S., where they were gaining automotive assembly plants and other activity even in the lumber industry the us was was doing a little better so we need we mm-hmm. need i think a cheaper currency
2: So you're saying even as we're getting into this area where we're talking about and thinking about you know the recovery from the pandemic and moving forward would you like to see that dollar move lower then
5: yeah, I think we would do better with the Canadian dollar, a few cents cheaper. And the Bank of Canada has started to say the same message, and they can really try to prod the foreign exchange market to doing that. One reason money is flowing into Canadian dollars is our interest rates are a bit higher than they are in the U.S. in terms of short-term rates, and they can either cut short-term interest rates in Canada a little bit further, closer to zero, or at least threaten to do that uh, if the currency doesn't settle down.
2: Okay, so what is driving it then? Why is the currency going higher?
5: For the most part, this has nothing to do with Canada. Um, it's a, uh, a made-in-the-U.S. or made-in-the-world story that um, we've had um, the U.S. dollar has been sinking against all the other major currencies, the yen, the euro, and so on. So it's really that the rising tide of currencies against the U.S. dollar is lifting Canada's boat not really due to any particular good news on the Canadian economy.
2: So what is it that you think the government should do then?
5: I think that it, it's up to the Bank of Canada to signal to financial markets that contrary to what the market expects, we won't be the first to raise interest rates here, that we'll wait for the U.S. to raise interest rates. And that what that will do is make it less attractive for investors to park their money in Canadian dollars to pick up those higher short term interest rates down the road. Uh, But in the near term, there's not much they can do, uh, because it's really a story of the US dollar weakening against currencies. And it's a global story rather than a Canadian story.
2: Right. So do you see that happening anytime soon?
5: We're hopeful that at some point further along into 2021, uh, the Canadian dollar will sort of level off and maybe give back a couple of the cents it's it's gained recently. Nothing dramatic, but even if we were comfortable that the Canadian dollar would be more like 74, 75 cents, 76 cents, rather the real threat is we don't want to get to 85 cents. We don't want to start to see manufacturing plants in Canada close because we become uncompetitive.
2: Right. Now, Avery, I know you've been writing about this uh, this past week. What kind of reaction have you gotten?
5: Well, I think it's, It's interesting because it's something that I've talked about actually for a number of years that the exchange rate is an important variable for Canada's export sector. But what's new in the past month or so is that the new governor of the Bank of Canada, Tiff Macklem, came out and said very much the same thing, that our exports didn't do well in the last business cycle. And he did point a finger at the strength we've had in the Canadian dollar over the last decade um, as one factor behind that.
2: All right. We'll see what happens. Avery, thanks for your time.
5: You're welcome.
2: Appreciate that. Avery Shenfeld is the chief economist for CIBC Capital Markets, getting some attention this week for writing publicly about the Canadian dollar, saying that, listen, we would do better with the economy if the Canadian dollar wasn't doing as well as it is right now. It's gone up 10 cents in the last nine months. It's around 78 cents uh, to the U.S. dollar right now. And he says if we really want to see our exports do better, then we need to... Bring that down a little bit. Given that we're not doing a lot of cross-border shopping right now, I wonder if Canadians would be okay with that. This episode
0: is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. that
2: okay listen up if you've got a bird feeder on your property and i know that's a lot of you out there there's a deadly salmonella outbreak that has been killing small birds in metro vancouver and wildlife experts say you need to know about this if you have a bird feeder so joining us now is linda backer who's a co-executive director at the wildlife rescue association of bc good morning linda good morning how big of a problem is this right now it sounds serious
6: it is pretty serious. Yeah, there's um, hundreds of reports of sick and dying pine siskins in uh, our area.
2: And what is the cause of this? What's happening?
6: It's a bacteria uh, that causes uh, salmonella, and uh, it's easily transmitted through uh, the bird population. And um, this little songbird, the pine siskin, seems to be uh, very susceptible f- for this disease. Uh, we see it every couple of years going through. And, um, because they like to visit your bird feeder in large flocks, uh, it's easily, uh, transmitted through the flocks. So, um, yeah, bird feeders are definitely, um, a, a big contribution to this.
2: So it's because it's a place where they, they come and gather.
6: Yeah, they gather. And of course they, uh, leave uh, droppings behind. So, um, which other birds then can, can pick up. So, um, it's very important to keep your bird feeders clean and the surrounding area underneath it as well.
2: Okay, so like, what should people do then? So keep it clean, or should they take them down? Well, uh,
6: ideally, I would take it down until uh, at least the end of uh, mid end of February, uh, when the flocks have uh, have moved through. Um, uh, but if you insist on keeping it up, I would at least uh, clean it at least every two weeks with a bleach solution. If you see sick or dead birds already, definitely take it
2: down. Just take it down completely. So yes. should you, when you do the cleaning process, then should you be emptying out all the bird seed, everything, and just like cleaning, sanitizing the whole thing?
6: Yeah, sanitizing the whole thing with a bleach solution, like 10% bleach, rinse it really well afterwards and let it dry. Um Right. And you need to clean the area every day. And also, you know, don't give too much seed so it sits there. Like, give enough for each
2: day. Uh,
6: but, yeah, the best advice is to take it down. You're right.
2: Okay. So then if, let's say they do that, Linda. Then how do they know when it's okay to put it back up? Because I know a lot of people who just they really love their bird feeder.
6: I know. And in this time, uh, you know, it gives people so much joy. Yeah. Because there's no more, not much places you can go. Um and an an idea is to start thinking about what you plant in your yard so if you plant uh you know a wildlife garden as we say it uh you know native uh plant species that will attract birds as well and that will keep the populations healthier because it's a natural thing and not an unnatural thing like a bird feeder um You can definitely check in with Wildlife Rescue in February or at the end of February to see uh, if it's safe to put them up again. Uh, We might uh, update our website with that information as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you think the message is getting through? Are people hearing this? Yes, we have been getting
6: uh, lots of media attention, which is good to get the word out. And from social media, a lot of people have been calling in. So that's great. Um, it also makes us realize that it's pretty uh, serious, this situation. Uh, we've been getting uh, up to 80 phone calls a day. Uh, people reporting wow. sick and dead birds and asking what they can do. So yes. That's great.
2: What should they do then if they do find dead birds on their property?
6: Yeah, definitely the birds need to be removed. Uh, If they're dead, it's really sad. Um, The advice is, and we're working with government officials about this, is to um, either dig a deep hole to bury it, or double bag it and put it in the trash uh, and not in the compost.
2: Right. If you have a
6: sick, if you have a sick bird, uh, you can give us a call. You can try to catch it. Um, they are usually really easy to pick up because they are so lethargic and sick. Mm. You do need to be very careful because salmonella does trans- transfer to your pets and to humans as well. Um, so always wear gloves. Really wash your hands and everything right. uh, you've touched. Yeah.
2: So where can people get more information, Linda?
6: So on our website, we have two uh, blogs and um, a frequently asked questions uh, uh, page. So wildliferescue.ca.
2: All right. I'll get people to check that out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a good day. That's Linda Becker, who's the co-executive director at the Wildlife Rescue Association of BC. And I know that's disappointing news for people who have bird feeders out there because you put it up because you love it. You love to see the activity. You love to see the birds come to your yard. Right now, though, the safest thing is to temporarily at least take the bird feeder down unless you're prepared to thoroughly clean it every day not put too much bird seed in it but they've got a deadly salmonella outbreak right now that is killing small birds and they said the only way to make sure they don't gather which is you know the kind of the bird equivalent of what our covid restrictions are is to take down those bird feeders in your backyard for more information check out the wildlife rescue association of bc online Well, 2021 hasn't started out well on the jobs front, has it? I mean, we had some great months leading right up to the end of the year. It was month after month of, you know, good employment numbers. And then we got to January. Now, we did lose 63,000 jobs in the Canadian economy at the end of 2020 and then this month, and we're only, what, two weeks into it at this point, we already know that both WestJet and Air Canada are cutting thousands of jobs. So once again, it is that tourism, that hospitality industry that is being very hard hit even in this second wave of the pandemic. So is this going to continue? Can those industries rebound? Well, joining us now is Ken Peacock, who's the chief economist of the BC Business Council. They've also been working on an analysis of that sector that is going to be released later this week. Ken, thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Simmy. So why did you want to take a closer look at what's going on in the tourism and hospitality sector? Well, just
7: because that is, it's very clear now. That is where the the pain from this pandemic is concentrated, and they have to be a little bit careful because there's other consumer-facing services that are also pretty hard hit. But it's it's very evident that that this is where where most of the the uh, job lot. Well, there's still a great deal of job losses concentrated there and if we look across sectors there's kind of a very very different emerging patterns you know the bc's export industries and professional services have actually seen strong employment growth right over the, the pandemic period a little bit of a dip in the early part but uh, if you look at the tourism industry and the food and accommodation sector which does to a great degree degree rely on tourism uh, employment has just leveled off we saw a little bit of a rebound when restaurants re- Opened uh, and, and that's recovered, but it's just been a very slow grow, slow go. So yeah. Yeah, concern remains.
2: So in your analysis, then, like when you look at it, do you think okay, this is a couple months? We expect things to start getting better, or do you think it's going to take longer?
7: I, I'm concerned that it's going to take longer. The um, you know the concern in the air transportation industry in particular is, is we're not going to we're going to wake up and not realize what we had un- until it's gone. And so you you mentioned the layoffs. This isn't the first round of layoffs. So capacity is being vastly reduced in in Canada's airline industry. And so consumers are going to go to get on flights when when we reopen fully again. And there's not going to just be the option and choice. And my concern is that those will take a long time to rebuild and, and get back in place, which, of course, will impact tourism over the longer term.
2: Right, but I guess just, just but the demand will still be there though ken that 's the thing, right, like I know tons of people who just can 't wait to start traveling again once you know vaccinations and everybody are safe again
7: well this is this is exactly the challenge i mean i to be honest with you, I sort of flip flop sometimes because I agree there is this pent up demand mm-hmm. uh, and and there's going to be a, a burst, and I, I think people are going to get back traveling the question and issue that remains though is is that capacity going to be there and and are people going to come back kind of quickly On mass, when I think about how this vaccine is going to be rolled out, I mean, it's clear there's capacity constraints. So uh, I'm not sure that there's going to be full-blown travel again in the way that we envisioned from the past. Um, Sort of in in the second half of the year, it could take longer for that to come to pass.
2: I feel like this is almost like a chicken and egg situation we're talking about here, because people may want to go to Atlantic Canada or to visit other parts of BC, but they may want to fly there, but they can't because There's no availability, therefore, they don't go.
7: Right, sure. And, you know, these connections, I mean, there's there's leisure travel, but there's, there's also business travel. Yeah. I'm sure video conferences have replaced business travel to a degree, but that's not going to be the case forever. We are going to see business travel come back. Uh, so, so you know, it's a bit perplexing that governments haven't been a little bit more focused on uh, on, on supporting the, this airline industry because it really does provide <laughs> a very critical connection. Uh, I mean, Canada is geographically vast. Our province is geographically vast. Uh, so I, I do worry about reducing uh reduced options and capacity uh as of the, you know later in this year and as the recovery unfolds
2: well that's what I wondered about too because you're seeing all the smaller communities hit right companies like Air Canada and saying okay we're going to cut we're, we're going to cut flights to Penticton to Kamloops, uh to Prince Rupert even they're doing the same in Atlantic Canada are we going to have to go back to the days when the government says listen if you want to fly to the the good routes you're going to have to fly these small routes too <laughs>
7: Uh, I'm not. Sure. I don't know where, how it's going to. I mean, it, it would be very. It would be uh, amusing, I guess, perhaps, if the government was trying to impose those kind of regulatory uh, circumstances on it without having paid too much attention or or supported the industry during this crisis too much. So I do not know. I am not an expert enough uh, in the airline space, but. I do know for certain that uh, the employment numbers in the airline industry are down sharply. And like you said, more layoffs. And this has widespread ramifications right across. The thing about tourism is, sure, it's concentrated in the metro Vancouver area. But the reality is it's right across the province. I mean, many small communities rely on tourism and travel activity and uh, of course the summer months are the peak months but even in the winter months it's an important source of revenue uh, particularly export earnings for the province which uh, are important to our well-being so
2: well do you think these industries will be able to bounce back or rebound or do you think the longer this goes on that becomes more difficult
7: it does it becomes more difficult when when you see capacity reduced like the airlines but this could also happen in the hotel industry, operators closed down. Now, the reality is um, these structures remain in place. So we're probably talking about uh, financial restructuring and bankruptcies. But still, this takes time. Uh, Capacity is reduced. Of course, it hurts anybody who has uh, you know, cap- capital and equity in these properties. Mm-hmm. So to the extent that unfolds, it, I, I see a more gradual recovery in the tourism space. Like I say, I think you're going to see a bump early on, Yeah. but to return to anything like normal, Simi, it's starting more and more to feel like a a gradual recovery that hopefully gets some traction in the second half or third quarter of this year. But but again, I'm going to have to wait and see to to sort of get a sense of just how quickly that rebound will form.
2: All right. We'll wait to read the analysis. Ken, thank you.
7: You're very welcome, Simi.
2: Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. They are releasing an analysis of the hospitality and tourism sector later this week, so that's a bit of a preview there. Uh, but I have heard and read some analyses of the situation that say that the airline industry won't really rebound, and this is worldwide, until perhaps 2024. Uh, and I think the reasons that Ken pointed out there are probably you know, in the reasons why that's going to happen is you may want to go somewhere. But there may not be a flight available. That's what I'm finding now is that we're so used to being able to just look up and getting a flight anytime, multiple times a day, and they're reducing more and more flight availability. So if you can't get the flight, then therefore you don't travel, meaning you can't help the industry rebound. And it's like this vicious circle that it sounds like is going to take longer for that industry to get back on track. Well, let's talk about what's been going on this week with Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. So back in court this week, trying to get her bail conditions adjusted. Her lawyers claim that having that security detail with her all the time, which is part of her bail conditions, is putting her at increased risk of COVID-19. But the story from that security detail is very, very different. There's a lot to go through here. So let's talk to Ian Young, the South China Morning Post Vancouver correspondent. Hi, Ian.
8: Hi, Simi. How are you?
2: I am good, thank you. But I got to tell you, I am fascinated by the story. I have been following it all week.
8: Yeah, there's been lots of really interesting revelations uh, in the hearings this week about um, about Meng Wanzhou's lifestyle here in Vancouver under house arrest. And so, you know, that kind of stuff is uh, really always quite fascinating, I think.
2: Yeah, let's break this down first of all. So she's back in court because she wants her bail conditions altered. What is their reasoning for that?
8: Yeah, the um, she's currently free on $10 million bail, um, and that was set in back in 2018. Now, at the time, um, you know, the, the, the judge in that, uh, that ruling decided that she had to be guarded 24 hours a day by this private security outfit called Lion's Gate. Now, Lion's Gate is paid for by Meng Wanzhou, but they're actually acting as um, agents of the court to prevent Meng Wanzhou from escaping. They also protect her, but they're, they're, they're there to stop her from fleeing. Now, Meng Wanzhou's reasoning is that um, uh, uh, these guards now that she's um, she has to have with her when she's outside of outside of her home. Present a COVID nineteen risk because they have to all pile into the same SUV. She's with three of these guards um, in right. her car at any any time. So yeah, no, that's that's the reasoning.
2: Okay, so you go. Okay, that's uh, understandable. Except now we're getting into the story of her day to day movements, and it's a pretty different picture though from what has been given out so far.
8: Yes, the Canadian uh, government lawyers oppose uh, this request. Uh, they highlighted various activities by Hmong that they say actually um, uh, depicts uh, COVID-19 risks taken by her. And that includes uh, restaurant meals, going out to a coffee shop in groups. Uh, she would visit. A home that we found out was rented by uh, her Huawei posse here in Vancouver, uh, and also that um, that Meng Wanzhou's husband and her children, when they came uh, out and have been staying with her, when they flew out here in late uh, 2020, uh, they actually quarantined in the house with her for their 14 days. So um, all of those things would seem to undermine uh, the claim that Meng Wanzhou is terribly worried about COVID-19 from uh, you know from right. from from her guards.
2: It also seems quite clear that in some circumstances that that she is, they're not going along with the COVID-19 regulations in this province, uh, including having a holiday dinner at a restaurant with 14 other people.
8: Yeah, that was a Christmas Day, uh, Christmas Day dinner where they booked out the entire restaurant. Uh, there were 14 people there. So once again, it was Meng, Meng Lanzhou, her husband, Lu Xiaozhong, who also testified. their are two children and a whole bunch of people um, who were part of her, her team, I think is what they called them. Now, that team obviously doesn't live in Meng Wenjiao's household, Uh, the exact seating arrangements at this restaurant weren't made clear, but certainly this was a booking for a large group that exceeded the the limit Mm -hmm. of six, I think, that was in place at the time.
2: What is your sense then, Ian, of how this is going?
8: Uh, I don't know. I don't know what Mr Justice Erky's uh, position on this is. Uh, He asked some very pointed questions of both sides. Um, He'll release his ruling uh, at the end of January. I think it's January 29. He said he will um, make a determination. Um, But, you know, there was... There was quite an assertive pushback from the Canadian government lawyers, who say that Meng Wanzhou still presents um, a substantial flight risk because she has immense resources at her at her disposal and um, uh, you know strong motivation to want to flee Canada.
2: Yeah, and some of those resources at her disposal I thought was interesting as well. So there was that recent decision late last year where I think her lawyers and she thought that she was going to be freed, essentially. Um, and they had a, what, a, a Boeing 737 waiting for her at the airport?
8: Well, it was actually a 777, a seven seven, so about twice the size of a 737. It's a huge plane. Wow. It's a 400-seat plane. Uh, this is a long-haul uh, jet that was privately chartered uh, to fly Meng Wanzhou back to China in victory. That was in a um, uh, the mistaken belief that she was going to be freed back in, it was in May. Um, and uh, yeah, they got it wrong. Uh, so this this jet actually never, uh, never took Meng Wanzhou back home. Um, but that was quite remarkable. So, you know, there are <laughs> quite substantial resources at Meng Wanzhou's yeah. disposal, that's for sure.
2: Exactly. So where is the whole extradition situation right now? How much longer is this whole thing going to go on?
8: Well, I mean, the short answer is that I don't know, but the longer answer is that the, um, the, the, the hearings themselves are scheduled to continue until May. Um, now, after that, there'll be a determination, and, um, you know, there could well be appeals from either side. So that could drag it out, for, uh, you know, for years, potentially. Um, but, uh, y- you know, it depends how things go. I mean, it, it could be that uh, if, if she is uh, ordered released by the judge, then she then, then it's all over in May. I can't imagine that she'll want to hang around here much longer.
2: All right. We'll see what happens. Ian, thank you. Thank you, Simi. Ian Young, South China Morning Post Vancouver correspondent who's also been very closely following what's going on in court with Huawei CFO Meng Wanzhou. Really, this week, though, following along with that, you get quite the glimpse of the lifestyle here of somebody who is you know, charged with all these things and is uh, awaiting, you know, a decision on extradition to the United States and uh, yet private shopping expeditions to luxury boutiques in downtown Vancouver, closing down restaurants to be able to eat with groups of 14, which you're not supposed to be doing very different lifestyle, I'd have to say.